0: I'm Erica. And I'm Jules. Most people have at least one thing that they can't or won't eat. Yeah, we're
1: definitely like that. We started this podcast to talk about the gluten-free food industry. Like new products and some of the stories behind your favorite brands. And
0: living life with a specialty diet and also some important healthcare topics. Since we're
1: basically both broken inside. You had me at eat. So we've got a great throwback episode for you today. And one of the things that this episode addresses is non-celiac gluten sensitivity. So there's a ton of you out there who can't eat gluten. You just feel terrible with it. um, And you haven't been diagnosed with celiac disease, or unfortunately you went gluten-free before you saw a doctor. And now there is like no way that you will ever eat gluten again to see if you were tested for celiac disease. And that's kind of what non-celiac gluten sensitivity is all about. And obviously, physicians are still trying to figure out what it is. Um, There's unfortunately a lot of people that don't quite get it and don't even think it's a thing. Um, So, we're here today to kind of talk about that. So, Jules, do you want to introduce a little bit about what we're going to talk about today?
0: Yeah. um, It's called non-celiac gluten sensitivity, which is pretty much defines what it is. Sure. But it's been debated for a long time. There've been actually been studies out there that tried to prove that it didn't exist, that it wasn't a thing. And there've been studies that have tried to prove that it is a thing. We all know it's a thing because there's so many people who don't have celiac disease, but still clearly can't eat gluten. So it's a thing. So what is it and why is it? And, you know, what do you do about it? And that's, that's kind of what, what's been, you know, debated for so long now. And and there's this, this huge bucket of people out there Arguably more people have this thing called non-celiac gluten sensitivity even than have celiac disease. And mm-hmm. we still don't even quite know how many people, but um, there are a ton of people out there who can't eat gluten. So you know,
1: we, um, we call them PWAGs once upon a time. Do you remember that? People without celiac disease avoiding gluten. Um, and, and honestly, I think I really enjoy that because it just gives me an idea of like, we don't know what's going on, but hey, yeah. They don't have celiac, but they still need to be just as safe as someone with celiac disease and avoiding gluten.
0: Yeah. And, and I think, you know, it's, it's really rough for those people because, Um, you know, if they don't have a firm diagnosis of celiac disease, a lot of times they, they don't get the respect of, you know, doctors even, but also their family members and their, you know, their friends or people at a restaurant or whatever. And, and it's a really hard on those people, you know, emotionally to go through life, trying to defend themselves. And they're just, they're, they're, choice to not have gluten without that firm diagnosis of celiac. Yeah, at least
1: I have a label, right? At least I right. know for sure. And I know what's, what the issue is. And I can kind of tag myself like yeah, hashtag celiac. So I, I get it. You know, I crave that diagnosis because I didn't want to be someone without a label. I crave to know exactly what was going on with me. So I I, I get it. I understand it. Yeah.
0: And, and so One of the things that I really wanted to do with this podcast was to find a doctor who knew what he was talking about and was able to, um, you know, actually talk about non-celiac gluten sensitivity with the authority of someone, you know, who could actually say, yeah. Uh-huh, it's a thing, and this is why. And- yeah, it's
1: not some like naturopath who's trying to sell you like a um a supplement. You know, we don't want anyone that is going to be a quote unquote snake oil salesman. So everyone that we talk to, we want to make sure that they have their credentials and that they're not just trying to sell you something and that they're a, a esteemed researcher in the community. That's kind of why we're here. Absolutely. So I'm, I
0: am I count myself as extremely blessed to know Dr. Alessio Fasano very well. Um, he has written the foreword to all three of my books, and he's actually a friend of mine now after all these many, many years. But he has been on my podcast a few times, and this particular episode, we really focus on non-celiac gluten sensitivity because I just think it's so important that people do buy into the fact that it is such a real thing. Um, But we talk about that and a lot of other things. One of the other things we talk about that I think is also really key to getting good understanding for people who maybe have celiac or non-celiac gluten sensitivity or other dietary restrictions. There's a lot of questions about the FODMAP diet yeah. and low FODMAP diet and, and, you know, like, like how can that help lots of people? And so we get into that and some other cool topics. So it's kind of a, it's a really broad episode, um, with one it's of a grab
1: bag, but yeah. I love those episodes.
0: Yeah, it's a grab bag, but, um, Dr. Vasano is the head of the center for celiac research at mass general hospital. He founded the center for celiac research at university of Maryland when it was like the first ever, he is the goat of celiac research. Yeah. And, um, you know, I bow down to him, but, uh, he's pretty awesome. And I could listen to him for hours because he has the coolest Italian accent ever. <laughs> so, um, without further ado, lots of fun going on in this episode. I hope y'all like it.
2: Hello, and welcome to the Gluten-Free Voice. This is Jules Shepard, and I am honored to be joined this evening by Dr. Alessio Fasano of the Center for Celiac Research. Dr. Fasano, as you probably know, is um, a research scientist, a medical physician, an entrepreneur. He's kind of a a jack of all wonderful, exciting trades in the celiac world. He um, founded the University of Maryland Center for Celiac Research in 1996 and has been working so hard for our community. Ever since. The mission of this research center. Is to offer state of the art research, of course, but also teaching and clinical expertise and also to treat and prevent gluten related disorders. Uh, we'll be giving you this disclosure at the beginning. Dr. Fasano is also my personal doctor and also a friend. So I'm, I'm honored to have him on tonight to talk about all things celiac and gluten free. Now that May is Celiac Awareness Month, it seemed apropos to have him on. So thank you so much for taking time out of your very busy schedule, Dr. Fasano, to join us tonight.
3: Jules, the pleasure is all mine.
2: Well, thank you again, and I, you know, I have a list of all kinds of questions people have been sending in to me, so I'm sure, you know, we have a lot to talk about, but I would like to just start out by saying, like, as I said in the opening, you know, you started the Center for Celiac Research in 1996. Can you just describe for the listeners, you know, what was the state of the perception of celiac disease internationally even, but certainly in the United States in 1996 when you founded this center?
3: It was a really interesting landscape. Uh there was uh already a disconnection for what was already going on in Europe, i.e. a disease that was supposed to be, you know, not extremely frequent and uh affecting only kids to the understanding there was a much a bigger deal. And at that time the first epidemiological studies were coming out and uh, suggested throughout Europe the disease was in uh, in the range of 1 and 300, 1 in 400, and here in the United States was totally, absolutely ignored. And matter of fact, when I moved in '93, and started to really look into it, I was very, very surprised by this uh, you know, discrepancy. Um, so it, it was quite surprising, and, and when uh, we started to look into that, uh, I was discouraged by colleagues to say, you know, you're wasting your time. Uh, this, this is not here. Um, we look for it, and it's not here, and that's Was pretty much the beginning of my journey in the field of the celiac disease and related, gluten-related disorder in the United States.
2: Yeah, I remember, you know, hearing you talk and, and saying it's, it's as if God stood in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean and said all the celiacs go over here on this continent and no celiacs go over on the North American continent. It, does, it sounds ludicrous from the perspective of anybody, you know, now because of, of how far we've come, but I'm sure the landscape, as you say, was quite different then. So starting the celiac center in the United States, that was the first one in the United States, right?
3: Yeah, and it was really uh, a a state of necessity to start a a center because, uh, you know, it was not just the fact that, uh, you know, there was intellectual curiosity. As a matter of fact, one of the first papers that I wrote when I moved here was a paper entitled, Well, All the American Series Gone. Where are they? Um, But also, when we start to really with a great amount of work uh, to inquire uh, also clinically uh, about this uh, spare number of people with celiac disease and how to take care of them, I I faced, you know, the unbelievable situation that there was not even a lab uh, available to screen for celiac disease. Mm These tests were done, uh, uh, you know, uh, far in between uh, uh, in a very few labs and, only occasionally to, to, to the point in which we have to set up our own lab. So, really, we have to start from scratch. Mm-hmm.
2: Well, and, you know, I, I know you have since then partnered with um, the university in Italy to work together to bring, you know, the learnings that you have both, you know, gained in this journey of research with celiac disease, bringing those together, and I know you have, um been instrumental here in the United States as well as internationally in helping others start foundations and, you know, helping others actually start other research centers.
3: Yeah, again, uh, from the very beginning when we started really uh, to cut serious in the, in the, in the uh, issue, we realized that uh, to provide a good clinical care, we also had to embark on a scientific journey to improve the way of making diagnosis to network with the international community, because internally in the United States, there was very little interest about cedar disease, the necessity to eventually start to increase awareness of what cedar disease is really about, because at that time, the perception was that cedar disease was an allergic reaction involving only kids, and that's the reason why it was overlooked here. So we had to do a lot of work, even among healthcare professionals, to explain what exactly cedar disease was, and then... You know, at the end, um, once we were into uh, this journey, we realized that we really needed an organized center in which, under the same roof, we will have clinical care, strong research expertise, uh, awareness, and, uh, you know, a good training place for the people that were generally interested in really answer the key questions that were still open about serious disease. Mm -hmm. Well,
2: and I know there has been just such activity since you founded this in 1996. There's been, um, you know, the advocacy groups have really picked up. Um, There are other centers in the United States and the American – the Celiac Disease Alliance as well has been formed. And I know that you have been, you know, behind the scenes working really, really hard to help these organizations get started and get started on the right foot and to be as cooperative as possible because it all works, you know, towards the same end, which is, you know, trying to help either find a cure for celiac disease or to diagnose as many people as possible and to make the lives of those with celiac disease, um, you know, actually very um, healthy and fun, you know. So yeah, and I think...
3: again, uh, this was uh, out of uh, necessity when after this original push of the center, we realized that indeed celiac disease exists and was overlooked. It was pretty obvious that there was a need of a unified front really to fight for the improvement of quality of care and quality of life uh, of celiacs. And, and you know, what we faced at that time was really a, a lack of coordination, disconnect among different, you know, support groups and 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 uh, you know um operations that were trying really generally to help. But you know, of course, when you face, for example, legislator and you come with multiple voices, your contractual power is really low. And that was, you know, the crucial step was the creation of the alliance that really mm-hmm. unified the voice behind. The need, the genuine needs of people with the disease and other related, uh, gluten related disorders.
2: Yeah, I think it's, uh, you know, to a bystander looking in, I think, you know, people would maybe consider that you are you know, and obviously you're a wonderful doctor, or you're a wonderful teacher, you're also a teacher at the University of Maryland um, Medical School, you know, or that you're a wonderful researcher, or that, you know, you've actually been instrumental in a lot of the legislative activities, you know, just really driving that on behalf of the celiac and gluten-free consumer. But I doubt if most people understand that you're all of those things. And I think that's one of the reasons why. You know, you have achieved so much in in your you know relatively short career as this wonderful Celiac researcher because you've been able to to tie all of that together and and be all of those things and you know one of our greatest advocates. So on behalf of the entire community, I would um, love to thank you for that and for your tireless efforts on our behalf. But um, you know, when I was diagnosed with Celiac disease, it was in the late 90s and it was not, I was not living here and I was not um, a patient at the center, but that was back before there were any blood tests that might help doctors have an indication of the fact that you had the antibodies. Can you talk about how that blood test was Um, how you all came up with the blood test and and who was involved and when that all happened, because I think a lot of people listening probably are saying, yes, I've had that blood test done, or I've been tested um, in a lab, you know, just from serologies as opposed to the endoscopy for celiac disease. And I I don't know if folks really know how much, um, you know, you are instrumental in all of that.
3: Well, first of all, uh, I thank you very much for the word of appreciation that doesn't, they don't go to the single individual. I mean, I'm uh, Simply the director of the orchestra. I mean, I'm I'm, I'm mm-hmm. blessed and honored and humbled to have an a unbelievable group of collaborators uh, that are you know the backbone of the center that allowed us to really to achieve all these milestones. Uh, you know, as concerned the diagnosis, as I told you at the beginning, we were forced to open a, a diagnostic lab with all the paperwork that is necessary to make you know a lab to release you know. Results. And at that time, you're right, the tools were kind of rudimental, so to speak. Uh, We had some, you know, good tests, but not very, very superb tests to screen for seeded disease. The only test that we had at that time was the anti gliding antibodies. And uh, um, you know, uh, and we set up the lab with that. And then there were finally came these much more specific antibodies, i.e., the anti-endomysium antibodies. They are very, very good, but I have a major caveat: are operator dependent. In other words, you need really a skilled individual that will look at the microscope and make the call. So it's not the mm-hmm. machine that does this, but it's an mm-hmm. individual. And only if you do this hundreds and hundreds of times you really come up with those skills and we were blessed to have you know set it up the lab and have a technician that really Understood how to correctly interpret it. So we were in the only lab in the mid 90s to do this test but mm-hmm. labor intense extremely uh, Complicated and uh, you know definitely suboptimal and then uh, in 1997 a, a German researcher, uh, Schuppen, identified finally what was the target of this anti antibodies that we look under the microscope that turns to be these enzymes called tissue transglutaminase or TTG. Of mm-hmm. course, immediately we jump on it and we create a, a test that can be run by a machine. The same similar test in terms mm-hmm. of concept, the anti-gliding antibodies, mm-hmm. using the only TTG that was available at that time, commercially available, that was from guinea pig. Results a disaster. It was <coughs> a really miserable test. So we uh-huh. went back to the draw board and tried to reason why this is happening. And uh, you know, we decided that probably this guinea pig uh, uh, based TTG was not good enough, and we had to really try to get the human TTG as a, a, a target for this test, but there was nothing commercially available. So uh, we were lucky enough that we were had a recent scientist from Italy at that time that was a skilled uh, molecular biologist and a geneticist that was able in a relatively short period of time to clone the gene. And then once we had that, we produced that in large amounts, and we developed the test. And I have to say with my great satisfaction, um we were the first, uh, uh, place to publish this, uh, human anti-TTG antibodies. I say with satisfaction because until then, my European colleagues keep joking, uh, with me and say, you know what, you work in the United States, it's the most advanced, you know, scientific society in all fields. You guys are 30 years ahead of the game, but one, that is, you, where you are 30 years behind. So, it was really, it's nice that we were able to really at least scoop our uh, <coughs> European colleagues, even if for a few months, was that right. And then this now, of course, is the test that we use routinely in diagnosis.
2: Well, and that leads me to some questions that I got um, over the last couple of days on Facebook when I posted about the fact that you were going to be on the show. Some people sent me some direct messages and also posted questions on Facebook. And the one that comes up again and again is, you know, are there any other tests on the horizon that would allow people who have gone on a gluten-free diet and are feeling better to then be able to be tested for celiac disease without having to go back onto um gluten. Um I've got two questions in front of me right now that they're saying, you know, people don't blame folks for not wanting to go back on gluten just to get the accurate biopsy or the accurate blood test done because you know, they're oftentimes they're going on a gluten-free diet is life-changing, and you don't want to put your child back on it and watch them, you know, become so ill, or you don't want to do it yourself to go through that that's just for the test.
3: Yeah, that's right. So this is a question that, of course, we uh, receive gazillions of times. I'm so, sure. Um, and and the the simple answer is, unfortunately, no We do not have one. No, I don't think that we will never have one. And the reason why is because this test that we do a sort of red flags that will signal to us that our immune system is fighting against gluten and it's fighting with a mechanism that leads to the damage of the intestine. So when uh, you go on a gluten-free diet, you feel better. Um, you know, in the past, we automatically assume, okay, this must be a serious disease. We now know there is much more than that. There are other mm-hmm. reactions to gluten. And when you go on a gluten-free diet, the tools to place you in this uh, you know, spectrum of gluten-related disorders are gone. We have a, 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 a surrogate, so to speak, that was also uh, developed here at the Center in, uh, uh, at the University of Mellon, and this is the uh, genetic test in the HLA. So um, we know that all celiac, pretty much almost the totality of celiac patients, must have either this HLA-DQ2 or dq 8 and uh, mm-hmm. uh, therefore, without that gene, you cannot develop celiac disease. That's pretty much what we know right now. We also know, though, that one-third of the general population have these genes and will never develop celiac disease, meaning that these genes are necessary but not sufficient. You've got to have other genes that we know just a little bit but not that much. All this to say that when you go on a gluten-free diet, the only option that we have is to test for the gene, Uh, the pressure of this gene, of course, is not influenced by your diet. If you have the genes, well, all the bets are still on the table because you can be in any part of this spectrum. But if you don't have those genes, we know for sure that your improvement following a gluten-free diet was not due to severe disease. So there is really no need to do the challenge at that point because you already know that you have other forms of gluten-reaction. right. But at that
2: point, if you do have the genes, you could still, as you said, you could be one of the folks in a third of the population that has the genes, but you still don't have celiac disease.
3: And and for that reason, unfortunately, at that point, the only options, if you really want to have an answer, is indeed to respond. Uh, yourself to gluten, got sick again, and so on and so forth, and I believe that this concept needs to be made very, very clear, because the best that we can do in a situation like this is to avoid going on a gluten-free diet before right. the diagnosis. To give it a right. try is not the way to do it. This is right. too serious. It needs to be done in the right way. It can be life, uh, you know, long uh, implementation of a diet. This kind of stuff cannot be done lightly without the supervision of a dietitian or a physician. So the best advice that I can give in, uh, is that if you really do believe that gluten is harming you in some shape or form, do not try the gluten-free diet before consulting your physician or your dietitian. You need really to do the, go, the game the right way. So do the test first and then diagnose. That by the way. It's the way that we treat any other disease of humankind. We diagnose first and then we do treatment. We don't give it a try. Right. Well, and, you know,
2: unfortunately, I still hear, and I'm sure you do as well, from folks saying, but my physician never told me that. And, you know, there is still so much about... about this disease that is complicated even for a general practitioner or even unfortunately for some who specialize in gastrointestinal disorders To to grasp all of these different concepts, you know, a that you could have the gene but not have celiac disease, you know, b just because you have the blood test and it's negative doesn't mean you don't have celiac disease, and c you can't go on a gluten free diet before getting tested. I mean, there are a lot of really complicated issues that unfortunately not all physicians yet understand, and you know that's it's really hard from a from a patient's perspective to not feel like you're getting you know, the right advice necessarily from your physician. And I know it's worlds better now than it was just, you know, 10 years ago or even five years ago in terms of physician education. And I know you're, you're doing your part in that as well, but
3: you know, it, what do you well, do when someone. That, uh, Jules, I really do acknowledge that there's still a lot of work to do and there's still, um, you know, uh, a lot of confusion, even among uh you know ex- uh, expert gastroenterologist specialist but you really mm-hmm. just to you know expand a little bit on what you were saying you need to really to keep in mind that we start at the point in which we have to s- explain to our colleagues how to spell celiac that's how we started <laughs> yeah. i mean this was the, the landscape right. and you know the center has done a tremendous amount of work to really improve the quality of life of patients by increasing awareness I remember that at the very beginning of this journey, I used to asking, uh, you know, our patients, you know, if you have a, a, a magic potion, a, a Latin lamp, uh, you know, what would you like to see? One of the answers has been always, I wish that my physician knows more than I do about disease. <laughs> and, yeah. and we really picked it by heart, you know, some of uh, the money that we uh, generously receive from our donors was invested in a huge project in collaboration with the North American Society for Pediatric Gastroenterology and Nutrition to create a, 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 a teaching tool, uh, slides that were used to give ground rounds. Uh, f- we did more than 150 ground rounds to really spread the word, to really teach to our uh, colleagues w- the basics, the, the really basic elements of uh, how to handle serious disease. Are we there yet? No. Yeah. But we have made a tremendous try because at least everybody knows what serious disease is. Everybody. Right. Maybe not everybody knows how to handle it, but at least it's something that is not completely oblivious of the professional knowledge at this point. And, and again, if you think that only 10 years ago we were in a situation which you know cilia disease was not taught in medical schools was not in textbooks and again was completely under the radar screen in the United States i mean zero absolutely zero yeah
2: i know and it took me it took them 10 years to diagnose me and and i was yep. at you know, University of Maryland, I was at Duke, I was at Georgetown, like, I was a very reputable hospitals. And they did, you know, theoretically, every test under the sun and couldn't figure anything out. So it definitely was not on their radar. And I can tell you, you know, my contemporaries when I was in graduate school, when they were in medical school, related to me after I had been diagnosed, that, um, you know, the amount that they learned about celiac disease was about four minutes and they were told it's a pediatric disorder and you're never going to see it. And I can Perfect. say, yes, and it's shocking. But, you know, I go every year to your class at University of Maryland Medical School and talk to your students there about um, celiac disease from the patient's perspective and I probably talked to them for like thirty minutes or forty five minutes as part of the program there at University of Maryland. And obviously I'm not the you know the entire discussion on celiac disease. I'm just part of it. So it's a radical difference between the education that our physicians are receiving now, thanks to programs like the one you described and what they were receiving, you know, even just ten years ago.
3: But, you know, consider, for example, what you just said. You know, for our medical students, that clinical correlate, you coming and teaching about seater disease is one of the most popular classes that we have in medical school. This was because I bring scones. Yeah, it was <laughs> unthinkable <laughs> 10 years ago. And, you know, for example, in, 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 I believe that, you know, it's universally accepted the cornerstone that really changed the the perspective of what seeded disease is and the frequency and so on and so forth was our epidemiological study that was published in 2003. 2003, less than 10 years ago. If you think the journey that we took as a select society in these 10 years, unthinkable. I mean, you know, 2003, you go to any kind of, uh, you know, um, let's say, conference or, you know, symposia, of, uh, nothing, absolutely nothing about serious disease. Tomorrow, I'm leaving for the Digestive Disease Week that will take uh, place in San Diego. There are at least 75 abstracts on serious disease and four symposia that are completely wow. dedicated to serious disease or gluten-related disorders, and in general, are packed, packed. Yeah. So I think that now, in, in in a relatively short period of time, um, you know, the disease and now this other gluten-related disorder are getting on the spotlight, and I can only see improvement that will be, you know, exponential in terms of knowledge from the healthcare professional class. Mm-hmm. And this will go vis-a-vis with the quality of life of people that have to deal with this kind of problems. Another um, person had
2: posted on Facebook about, you know, wanting to know about your latest and greatest discoveries on gluten sensitivity. And uh, I know that this is a really hot issue right now. You actually just mentioned it a few minutes ago with gluten-related disorders. There's so much to talk about with that. But can you just sort of go over it briefly for the um, listening audience? You know, it used to be that we thought there was celiac disease and then nothing. But now we know it's celiac disease and then you can also have a gluten sensitivity or these gluten-related disorders. Can you walk us through how that, you know, finally came to be that we recognize that, and where we are in terms of research
3: for that. Well, this is a déjà vu. History repeats itself. So this is such a, a fami- familiar territory for for us. So we are experiencing all over again what we did experience 20 years ago with C D Disease. We made the observation, i.e., that you know, in clinic, once the awareness of CD Disease was increasing that a critical mass of people were coming believing that to have cedid disease, and actually they did not. They did not fulfill the criteria that we gave to ourselves to diagnose people with CD disease. And mm-hmm. we, because we gave us those kind of rules. We said, sorry, you need to look in different directions to try finding an explanation for your symptoms. They did. They reached the end of the road, and they decided, well, I tried everything, and everything seems not to justify my symptoms. I'm going to give a try on a gluten-free diet, and magically, the symptoms, they went away. They kept coming back with this kind of, uh, you know, um, experience. And we start really uh, wondering, is that possible that all these people, they are having this uh, uh, magical improvement as a placebo effect? We, in the meantime, you know, one of our fellows that came back from uh, that was doing the PhD here and then went back to Italy start to observe the same kind of phenomenon and she really was the instrumental uh, Dr. Sapone in uh, saying look uh, we really need to look in this direction there is something else that's going on here and long story short we start to really to look into possibility of a uh, other reaction to gluten and sure enough we found this other you know, condition that is indeed you know, uh Call the gluten sensitivity. We call gluten sensitivity. Nevertheless, to say that when we published this first time a couple of years ago, we received exactly the same kind of uh, reaction from our colleagues that we received when we start uh, discussing about celiac disease in the United States: skepticism, uh, 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 disbelievers, uh, people that say, "Gee, now you are aligning yourself with the alternative medicine doctors that they mm-hmm. come with this kind of junk and so on and so forth," and again. Uh, we, we are always to uh, operate the same way. We go by what we see and then we publish and then we see what happened. If we see in the wrong direction, uh, we will be the first one to admit that we were wrong. If on the other hand, people will follow supporting our findings, we help people. And that's the long and the short. And, and, and short enough, after these original publications, we had several other people that to really confirm the, the uh, existence this other form of gluten reaction. What is the caveat here? That unfortunately, contrary to serious disease and with allergy, that is the other form of reaction to gluten, we do not have tests, we don't have biomarkers. Yeah. So uh, we still are forced to make a diagnosis by exclusion criteria. So, in other words, if you believe that you're sick because of gluten and the symptoms, they improve once you go on a gluten-free diet. If you rule out the disease, if you rule out, you know, gluten-sensitivity, I mean, with allergy, then you have gluten-sensitivity. Now, what we're doing now, we are doing research uh, to, uh, first and foremost, to find these biomarkers. And we already started this study a while ago. It's a multicenter study. it got to be a double blind, so the patient should not know if he or she has been re-exposed to gluten to avoid a placebo effect. And when we finish the study, hopefully, we will have these biomarkers. And in the meantime, we've been also embarking in some uh, very, very complicated areas in which gluten has been always questioned in terms of role in the the genesis of diseases like autism and schizophrenia. And again, Mm -hmm. it's our intention to really understand a little bit uh, what's going on and distinguish facts from fantasies, and there also we made some strife. Interesting enough, once we published this data, you know, as happened with the celiac disease, we had colleagues confirming one, the existence of gluten sensitivity, and two, that, uh, uh, you know, this gluten sensitivity can explain a subgroup of individuals with this other condition, like autism and schizophrenia. And, and, and once we put this uh, entire situation in motion, we decided to really do our homework and to organize a consensus conference that was held in London almost a year ago in which, you know, a dozen of experts worldwide came uh, around the table and uh, Dr. Kadassi and I, Dr. Kadassi, the co-director of our center and I, we chair this group of uh, colleagues for two days were locked in and came up with the a, a, a clear definition of gluten-related disorders, new nomenclature to avoid the confusions, uh, for example, uh, between gluten sensitivity and gluten intolerance, uh, serious disease, the people that have always used this as synonymous, but synonymous are not. And, and that paper that was published only uh, uh, three months ago has become one of the most popular papers, been downloaded already almost 30,000 times. Wow. In only three months. Meaning that there is a lot of confusion out there, but there is also a lot of interest to really clearly understand what this is all about.
2: Well, and, you know, you mentioned the nexus, the potential nexus between schizophrenia and gluten and also autism and gluten, and you alluded to some further research in those areas. Um, are there currently studies going on to further explore the connection between gluten and those uh, disorders as well, or is there something in the works? Where Where does that stand?
3: Sure. Well, again, uh, the fact that gluten can be a religious disorder is not, you know, novel I mean you know there's been ongoing discussion um, for a healing discussion that led to you know um, two camps one, one of the believers the other one of the non-believers uh, and that created tremendous amount of uh, you know uh, uh, fractions and, 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 and stress uh, to uh, really uh, around this topic the, the the fact is that you know it, the role of gluten has been always analytical. for example schizophrenia it has been reported in literature that during World War II, the schizophrenic rates in Europe, where you know wheat was was scarce because of the war, dropped, while here in the United States, during the same period, when we have abundance of wheat, went up. So they they, you know. Wow. Well, there are circumstantial evidence that this seems to be the case. And then, you know, there have been some studies a little bit confused uh, and poisoned, uh, so to speak, by their design that seem to suggest that there is such a link and so on and so forth, but really not really crystallized the way they're supposed to be. There, we took this by heart, and in collaboration with our colleagues at Johns Hopkins, we study a large number of schizophrenic patients, more than 12, 1,200. With numbers that are pretty obvious now to us, that not all, of course, but a subgroup of these individuals, roughly 15%, 16%, they may have reached that kind of state of mind, the disastrous state of mind, through gluten sensitivity. And uh, uh, we also uh, really a few weeks ago published another paper in which we probably under- uh, put another major milestone in place in terms of understanding how gluten can affect the brain if you're genetically predisposed leading to this kind of outcome of schizophrenia because we found that, indeed a biomarker of neuroinflammation caused by gluten. So I believe that this is a remarkable, you know, finding because this also allows us now to start to the next step that is our really goal of a clinical trial in which we take this individual with this positive neuroinflammatory marker and put them on a gluten-free diet. And we already recruited three or, two or three of these patients with quite remarkable results. Yeah. Uh, they, they they definitely. Are able to improve on the scores that you know experts in the fields are defining for you know the improvement of schizophrenic traits just going on a gluten free diet. Same story with autism. There is well known, and it's been ages that parents put the, these kids on a gluten free, casein free diet. That is one of the most popular intervention of us, of kids with uh, autism. The problem there, that again. There are strong believers that believe that all kids without autism can be treated like this, and strong disbelievers that say this is junk. Actually, mm-hmm. you, uh, you you know this is all placebo effect, or there is no, absolutely no objective improvement in these kids. And and the, the debate got so heated that the NIH has to step in and said, okay, order here. Let's do control studies and try to answer if indeed this is bogus or is real. And at the end of this, you know, exercise, six studies were published. Three concluded that there is absolutely no difference if you go gluten-free. In other words, the gluten-free diet doesn't do anything to these kids without this. Other three studies concluded that it's highly effective. So, (laughs) bottom line, we're square one. And the problem, I believe, that is really in terms of the methodology. Because, you know, the confusion is that you know if you pretend to find a bullet magic bullet that fix all uh, kids with autism and that you will be confused by this you know inconsistent results but if you accept the concept that autism is the final destination and you can get there through different paths one being gluten sensitivity you also need to accept that not all kids can be treated with that particular you know right. uh, intervention and an example Let's say that you have hundred kids with autism, and let's say that you know a certain number of them have got their final destination because of uh, you know uh, um, vaccination, or because they have a metabolic disorder, because they have the genetic defect, or because they have metal intoxication. Uh, there are all causes, by the way, that have been you know put in the picture as uh, responsible for autism. And let's say that one group got there because of gluten sensitivity. Let's say that 20 of these 100 kids, they have gluten sensitivity. Mm-hmm. If you treat them all with a gluten-free diet, 80 will not respond because they got there by other means. The 20 with gluten sensitivity will respond. So the efficacy is 20%. And you say, this is not work. That's a failure. <clears throat> but if you take the same population, you stratify first and say, okay, I can beforehand know who has gluten sensitivity. And now I give the diet only those. Now. All 20 will improve. You have 100% efficacy. Same population of kids. That's the reason why this search for biomarkers is so important. Yeah, and you're saying that it's because there's a nexus
2: with gluten as a sensitivity, not with celiac disease and autism.
3: That's right, because that was the other confusion. When the people, they said, you know, the gluten-free diet is good for my kids because they are doing great. We automatically said, okay, then they have to have celiac disease. When we search for celiac disease, among kids without autism, the, 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 the percentage is extremely low, it's 2%. It's twice as the general population, but still it's mm-hmm, 2%, mm-hmm. meaning that 98% of these kids right. w- will have nothing to do with gluten. And that's the reason why the people that were more conservative were also skeptical, because they say right. if, if they improve gluten, they got to have serious disease. They don't, so the yeah. gluten it should not be given. I mean, it's, it's, it's not a response to this, so the gluten-free diet is is not pertinent. But now we know that, again, this is not a form, and, and this will explain this apparent dichotomy. Right.
2: Yeah, and if that biomarker could be found, yeah, you're right. That would just be such an amazing clue and into the insight of, you know, whether or not you could segregate even these kids with autism. But it would be so wonderful for all of those who right now just have that diagnosis by exclusion that you were talking about. But, you know, I when I talked to groups, and I just last month did, um, I was teaching at an autism boot camp in Washington, D.C., And, you know, people ask me, you know, well, do you think that there's a link? My answer is, you know, look, as you say, if you've been tested for celiac disease and it's negative, then try the gluten-free diet and see if you feel better. It's the same with autism. If you could put your child with autism on a gluten-free, casein-free diet and you see improvement, why would you not do that? But if you don't see improvement, then you don't see improvement. So it's just one of those things. Again, we're stuck in this, you know, diagnosis by exclusion or even in the case of autism, like improvement by exclusion. You know? That's
3: and, right. But you need um, to keep in mind also one more thing that while the improve, improvement in the symptoms on a gluten free diet with celiac disease may take months, gluten sensitivity in general, you see improvements in very short periods right, of weeks. Right. So if it doesn't work in weeks, you know that you're in the wrong direction. Right.
2: Yeah. In and that's view
3: the one small market. benefit. <laughs> Yeah.
2: Yeah. Well, and then since we're talking about the subject of testing, I get this question all the time. What about the stool test? People insist that the stool tests are able to diagnose gluten sensitivity or even celiac disease. Could you just briefly speak to that? Because I know a lot of people have confusion about
3: that. Sure. Let's uh, talk about celiac disease first. Uh, Well, the the reason why... you know, um, people would like to have a stool test because of course it's non-invasive, it's more practical and so on and so forth. What is the caveat here? That is not validated. So in other words, you know, why the blood test has been validated and is standardized and we know exactly what is black and what is white, we don't know this with the stool test. The stool test is done mainly by only one commercial lab and a year and a half, two years ago, a group in Belgium trying to validate this and found absolutely no validation of this stool test. So, according at least to this, uh, um, you know, Belgian group, it seems that you know the stool test is not really um, uh, valid in terms of uh, you know uh, a, a a good diagnosis of the disease. Now, keep in mind, this is the diagnosis for life. And honestly, you can't do this on a shaking ground. You need to have solid rock, good foundations on which you base your decision to embrace a gluten-free diet for life. So I don't think that unless, again, in the future, and I don't exclude the possibility, but in the future, there's going to be validation by other labs of the um, you know, sensitivity and specificity of the stool test. I don't think that that will be entertained as a test for severe disease. For gluten sensitivity, the situation is even worse. We don't even know what is a biomarker in any fluid, including the blood. Can you imagine the stools? And the tests that may be commercially available out there have been commercially available for a long time, even before that we define what gluten sensitivity is. So I think that, again... The steps, as we did for celiac disease, are very clear. One, define what we are talking about. Two, find good biomarkers that are specific to control studies. And three, validation. And again, okay. if once we got the two steps done, uh, we can uh, validate the stool test for gluten sensitivity, so to be. Uh, but, you know, that didn't work for celiac disease for sure. Okay.
2: Well, thank you. I think that clears it up a little bit. And again, we get back to we need that biomarkers. Um another question that I've gotten a couple different times In different ways, but I'm going to try to pare it down to something that makes sense. There's, you know, obviously right now we hear so much about more and more people are diagnosed with gluten sensitivity. More and more people are diagnosed with celiac disease. People are like, why? is? Are there truly more people with that or are we just diagnosing it? And one of the questions was that there's perhaps another protein in the wheat, gluten and something else that actually might be um, driving the recent increase in gluten sensitivity. Is that, um, you know, myth, reality? What's going on there?
3: Yeah, well, uh, it is undoubtful that we have a, a growing number of people that experience severe disease or gluten sensitivity or with allergy. And this results probably uh, as the combination two factors that you just mentioned. One, we diagnose more. Of course, with increased awareness, you Search for serious disease that you find it. And we know this is a fact because, once again, mm-hmm. after that, we reached our milestones, uh, plant the cedar flag on the American uh, territory. We ask ourselves okay, we project that 3 million people have to have cedar disease here, only Forty forty five thousand. 45,000, this was in 2003, are diagnosed. How we search for the others. Should we screen all 300 million people? And that was not feasible, not cost-effective. So we decided for what we technically is called case finding. In other words, to look for celiacs where you expect they will be. In other words, people with sinus symptoms that we know to be related to celiac disease. And we did this ex- exercise, again, not long ago paper published in 2008 in which we took a, a group of individuals, like healthcare professionals and we told them, please, if anybody in your clinic comes with the following symptoms, abdominal pain, uh, headaches, uh, joint pain, anemia, you know, thyroid problems and so on and so forth, please screen for serious disease. We pay for it. In only one year, the rate of, of diagnosis increased 43 times. One year. So clearly, that was, you know, a, a clear sign that, you know, they had the needs of a teaching uh, to look in the right direction. I've ever since the same physician that claimed, and we've never seen the case, they keep <laughs> calling us to say, gee, I was surrounded by celiacs and they come out of the booth. So, one, definitely a better diagnosis. Two, again, for a study coming, coming, that came from our center, there is truly an increase of number of people that would uh, develop celiac disease over time. So we are in the midst of an epidemic. So that is not unique as celiac disease. There are other autoimmune disorders like asthma, uh, uh, multiple sclerosis, that are going through the same trend. So we've done this study fallen 3,000 people over time, and we realized that celiac disease doubled every 15 years. It was one in 500 in the 70s, one in 250 in the 80s, and now it's 1%. But this stuff is it's really bothering to us because, you know, we didn't expect that. Because, you know, CD disease is an autoimmune disease in which we thought that we got everything straight. You're born with a gene. You are exposed to gluten when baby food is introduced. The autoimmune process starts there. So that's the reason why it was believed there was a pediatric condition. And the adult cases, we always believe, okay, these are pediatric autoimmune process that really moved slowly toward the clinical appearance and became a clinically apparent only in adulthood. With this study, we realized there were people that for 30, 40, 60, 70 years ate gluten without having problems. They were able to tolerate, you know, without problems. And then all of a sudden, they lost this luxury and they switched from tolerance to an immune response that led to severe disease. This opened two key unbelievably important questions. One, what kind of tricks these people use to tolerate gluten <laughs> for so long? Because if right. you answer the question, you have the only grail of prevention of disease. use right. the same tricks and you will never develop severe disease or any other autoimmune disease because the mechanism is the same. Two, what happened to these people? They, they lost that luxury and then right. all of a sudden they start to develop the problem. And this is the question that you ask. What's going on here? And we, here, we have a long list of possibilities, not all mutually exclusive. Starting with quantity of grains. We eat more grains than we used before. The quality of grains. We eat grains that are very different from those that our grand-grandparents used to eat. You know, right. gluten was much less represented in wheat. Three, four generations ago, was roughly four, five, six percent of the content of of grains. Then, now it's thirteen, fourteen percent. So, the more gluten you have, the more toxic elements you ingest, the more likely you may eventually go over the edge. Mm-hmm. The other thing is the way that we handle this good with these uh, grains. You know, uh, generations ago, bread was made through an overnight process of levitation. So you take the flour, you take the water, you take the yeast, and then it would take 6, 17 hours, and then you put it in the oven. During 6, 70 hours, this yeast, they use their enzymes to detoxify these toxic elements, enzymes that we don't have. So now what happens is that panification and making bread is a matter of two hours you don't give the time to these yeast enzymes to help us out by detoxifying what there. So you have the perfect storm of more gluten in the grains and less time to be detoxified by Mm -hmm. its manipulation. And then, you know, there is also breastfeeding because we breastfeed less than before. And now we know that breastfeeding can help this process of yin and yang between tolerance and, and immune response to push toward tolerance. Mm-hmm. And last but not least, uh, the abuse of antibiotics that will really generate a, a storm in the, you know, uh, uh, this uh, community of microorganisms that live to, together with us in our guts. And this seems to be another reason why we are losing this luxury to tolerate gluten and uh, we more frequently get uh, sick with serious disease.
2: Well, long long, and very comprehensive answer to a really vexing question with lots of different moving parts. And um, I appreciate how you've laid that out because I think there are so many different um, ways of looking at the problem. And I know you all are, are busy trying to analyze that and figure it all out. But it, it is really interesting to hear about all of these people suddenly, you know, finding out that they have gluten sensitivity or are feeling so much better on a gluten-free diet. and And I recognize that some of those people are dabbling in it or doing it because it's a fad or you know, that kind of thing.
3: Um which well, kind of leads is, uh, Yeah, there is another issue there, i.e. that you know, if you compare the market of gluten free when we started there was yeah. non existent. was like right. eighty, ninety million dollars. Now we talk about, I don't know, the last figures that I heard is $5.6, 5800000000 billion right. with 60 million people a day eating gluten-free. Of course, there is a feed component. So, right. of course, there are some people that go gluten-free not having the medical necessity to do so. These are the occasional consumers, the ones that pay right. Are vegan tomorrow would be South Beach and then right. North Beach and then West Beach and then uh, they go gluten free. <laughs> right, I, mean, right. I know, but,
2: but it, that, that's you know, that's the problem though is that is that you see a lot of that in the media. People saying you know that they're doing whatever diet the South Beach, the West Beach, as you say, whatever it is, and they're lumping gluten free into that as well. And so the perspective is that there are a, a huge proportion of people eating gluten-free who don't have to, whether or not that's true or not. We're in
3: in a, in a, in a society of global uh, communications, and uh, sometimes these people not only embrace the gluten-free diet because of whatever, they feel better, whatever. They they pontify by making statements they are not, you know, accurate. And this mm-hmm. confused tremendously who honestly is trying to figure out, you know, what's going on with gluten in his or her own body. And then, you know, on top of it, you know, when you see this mark and so on and so forth, you see people that generally you know, try to make uh, advantage of it. I I understand, Uh, you know, and and we have seen, uh, you know, industries like, you know, General Mills, that, for example, see the opportunity and jump into the gluten-free arena. And I command them because, of course, they have to make money. But at the same time, they are making the CD community and the gluten-sensitive community better off by offering, you know, products that are more palatable and then a variety that was not even, you know, in the wildest dreams. So I command and I appreciate that kind of effort.
2: Um, Just on that note, Dr. Sano, I would like to just thank you again for everything that you have done and your team has done for our community. And um, I look forward to many more years of working with you and looking forward to all of the wonderful discoveries that are yet to be made to make all of our lives easier and more tasty.
3: But thank you so very much. Thank you very much, Jules. It's been a great pleasure to be on your show, and uh, I want to wish you all uh, good health.